Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and what a wonderful week it is. Tony Finau showed us how much he gets it. Following his win in the Mexico Open, he's back out on the golf course, but not on Vitante Vallarta, the course he won the Mexico Open on. No, he's on a local par three course under the lights, carrying the bag for his sons. Four hours after the win, there he is, bag on his shoulder, t-shirt, shorts, hat backwards, playing with his sons. How great is that? You go, Tony Finau. This week here in Atlanta, the Champions Tour is in town for the Mitsubishi Electric Classic. One of the most fun days in golf that I ever had was last year walking that course talking to Owen Brown. Looking forward to seeing all the next on the tee guys out there this week. One other bit of exciting news, thanks to all of you and all of my wonderful guests, Next on the Tee won gold at the Communicator Awards for Best Sports Podcast, and I'm humbled to say this, Best Host. Thank you so much to the judges at the Communicator Awards, and again, thanks to all of you and my wonderful guests for making those awards possible. You guys are the best listeners and the best guests in all of podcasting. Okay, on to tonight. First up with me is going to be our Director of Instruction, Tom Patry. He'll be followed by one of the all-time great golf artists, Linda Harto. Following Linda will be another all-time great, one of the best junior and college players ever, and a two-time winner on the PGA Tour, Rick Fair. And then we're going to round things out with the wedge guy, Terry Kaler. So it's going to be a really fun 90 minutes. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the Macklemore which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Berg and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to MacLemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. 
Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. All right, now back in next on the tee with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. You can find Tom at the Golf Club at Crown Colony in Fort Myers, Florida. If you want to play your best golf this year and you're serious about that, go see Tom and let him help you with every facet of your game. If you can't get down to Fort Myers, download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your swing through the app. You can find Tom online at TomPatry.com and on Instagram at TomPatryGolf. As I always like to remind you, don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel. You get 300 free video playing lessons on there. Tom won the Division II National Championship in 1981 when he was at Florida Southern College. He's in their Athletics Hall of Fame. He's also in the Sunshine State Conference Hall of Fame. Best of all, his New York Yankees are currently in last place in the AL East. And we're privileged to have Tom back with us tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? <laughs> How are you, TP? I'm uh, I'm coming out of a meeting, a, a dinner meeting, um, with my friends at Titleist, and uh, my belly's full. I'm in the White Beast driving home, and what's better? What is better than talking to Christmas Carol? Who yeah, I want to share with your listeners. Tell them what what kind of accolades you you won today. What what happened today, Chris? Yeah, it was, it was. I'm very humbled to say that the show won gold for excellence at the uh, Communicator Awards, uh, best sports podcast, and and uh, even more humbled to say best host. So that's all thanks to our listeners and to people like you, Tom, my wonderful guest. That uh, both of those things happen. Oh no, no! Oh no, no! Crazy boy! <laughs> <laughs> very lucky. Awesome! Absolutely awesome! So. Tom, besides having dinner with uh, with your friends at Titleist, I, I understand you've been doing a two day golf school with one of your clients. Which you know, I, I'm not sure what wh- what does that go for. How much do you got to pay somebody to spend two days with you? <laughs> well, let's put it this way, Chris: it's more money than I would ever spend spend, spend two days with me. I would never spend that much money. Why anybody? Why anybody? We'd spend that much money, spend two days with my wife doesn't doesn't get it at all. I mean, I I don't blame her. I mean, who would who would possibly want to actually spend money to spend time with me? I mean, seriously, why would you do that? Right. If it was reversed and you were paying money, I'd be interested to know how much you're willing to pay because I might free up a couple of days. But the other way around doesn't make sense. It makes no sense whatsoever, does it? It really doesn't. Does not. All right, so that brings up a good question. The Live Tour, and I know this is your favorite subject, later this summer, 
is going to hold a couple of tournaments not too far from your old stomping grounds at uh, Trump National Bedminster in New Jersey and then at down in Miami at, at Doral. You know, it, it stands to reason that someone like a, a Patrick Reed and Ian Poulter, who have heard about what a great short game coach you are, what a great overall coach you are, they could reach out to you for a day or two with, with the great Tom Patrick. If the phone rang, what would that be like for you? <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't, because I don't think there's a number, and I mean this sincerely, I don't think there's a number that a Patrick Reed or a Poulter could offer me to spend a day with them. Come on. No? Well, first of all, I don't teach cheaters, so I didn't say anything. Oh, oh. That's what I'm talking about. And I don't teach, pardon me, this is a podcast, right? (laughs) It is. I don't teach assholes. So (laughs) I don't don't know which, which, which adjective goes with which person. That's up to, that's up to the listeners, but, um, no, I don't, I, I wouldn't, those two, those two names specifically, you, you there's not enough money. That wouldn't happen. Wouldn't so happen. maybe, a, maybe a different live player gave you a call you'd consider, you take your call? No, I, I, I don't, um, I, I don't think I teach, I don't think there's a player in the live tour I'd like to work with, wow. to tell you the truth. No, I just, uh, I feel, you know, Chris, listen, it goes back to a very deep rooted feeling about, a date in our history called 9-11 and I had, I had seven very close friends in those two towers and um, I want nothing to do with anything that says Saudi money. Just don't. I'll pass on that. Changing gears just slightly and, and, and talking about short game opportunities. Cameron Champ's a guy that can hit the ball a mile. Back in 2017, I read his club head speed was 127.79. Charles Howe's another guy that can that can hit the ball really well, but put a wedge in their hands and and maybe not quite as good. Talk about for the rest of us putting the driver down a little bit and building a relationship with our wedges. Yeah, I, I just I look at those two guys who are you know wonderfully, incredibly talented. Those two individuals are really talented, and and known as hitting it a long ways, and known as actually pretty good ball strikers. But I've had an opportunity to watch both of them play competitive rounds. And let's just say their wedge play and their short iron play in general was not very pristine. And I don't understand with the access to statistics and really, really hardcore black and white feedback, why they're talented. They can can hit golf shots. They're, They're talented athletes. And they're, and they're playing at a very high level. Why they haven't figured out how to dial in clubs that are going to be in their hands a lot, considering how far they drive the ball. Um, you know, I, I just think there are three important clubs in your golf bag, Chris. Driver, wedge, and putter. I mean, I think the rest of the, the clubs in your bag are filler. I mean, I got, I had a wonderful opportunity years back to spend time with the great Jackie Burke Jr. at Champions in Houston. And, and Jackie preached a lot to me about driver, wedge, putter. You, you know, he just basically said, Tom, listen, here's the deal. If, if you can't drive the ball adequately and in play with a driver, can you be competitive? I said, no, it's very difficult, Jack. He said, and if you can't play short irons and particularly wedge play 
any shot required with the wedge. You know, we talk about relatively full wedge shots, intermediate wedge shots, bunker shots, pitch and run shots, whatever shot you're hitting with a wedge, and you're not doing those things at a very high level, can you be competitive on tour? I said, I would think not, Jack. And he said, if you can't putt like Jesus Christ, you know, can, can you win and play on tour? I said, well, no, you, you didn't get a lap. He said, you've got to be able to drive the ball adequately in play. You've got to be a wonderful wedge player at that level, and you've got to putt the ball really, really at a high standard. And if you can't do those three things, you should get a job and approach up holding shirts. <laughs> so that's how I feel about it. So let's switch gears a little bit. And we were talking earlier this week about some hidden gem courses that people might not be aware of. Talk about some that, that you've played, particularly Mountain Lake there in Lake Wells, Florida. Yeah, Mountain Lake um, is one of my favorite places to play golf on the planet. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are think, well, Mountain Lake, what the hell is Mountain Lake? But Mountain Lake is a Seth Rainer golf course in Lake Wells, Florida. And if you don't know where Lake Wells is, if you go about 30 miles down the road towards nowhere and you make it left, you run right into it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really Lake Wells. Is, and I'm not knocking Lake Wells or people who live in Lake Wells. So I'm going to get phone calls and emails about this one. But Lake Wells literally is in the middle of nowhere in Florida. And in Lake Wells, Florida is this wonderfully old, separate, untouched, classic. You know, it has the punch bowl. It has the redan. It has the barrette. It has all, all those classic designs. Uh, it's relatively untouched. It's private. It, it's in pristine condition. But the fact that it's really a Seth Rainer untouched, I mean, really untouched and in great condition. Um, and the fact that it's kind of tucked away in the middle of nowhere, it's kind of a little mystique, if you will. Um, it's just a real, and, and Chris, from the back tee, falling off the back tee. I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite 800 yards. It's fun. It's playable. The complexes, green complexes and the shots around the greens are really challenging. And you know how much I love short game shots. So it really tests you around the greens and on the greens. Um, it's just one of these old school by deep places that you feel like you could, you feel like when you go through the gate, you're going back in, in going back in time to another period. It just, it has that old, crusty kind of traditional feel. Um, it's just a, just a cool place. And when you find a place like that, and there's not too many of them left that are undiscovered, it's really special. And it's, it's a very special place to me. Tommy, um, you've played golf in so many of the great golf courses in our country. Do you, do you have any that are still left on your bucket list, whether it's here or abroad? Yeah, I do, Chris. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, on, on my modern bucket list, um, you know, I've never been to Vandon Dunes, and there's five out there now. And I'm gonna actually just booked a trip to go out there in, in September of 2024 um, 20, with a group of guys. I'm really excited about that. I've heard so many great things. I've had so many friends go, and nobody's come back and didn't rave about it. So I'm really looking forward to that. That was on my bucket list. Um, Crystal Downs in Michigan, I've never been to. I've always wanted to go up in the Northern Peninsula. Never been. Um, so that's on my list. Um, you know, uh, overseas, my, probably my number one bucket list place overseas is Royal County down in Northern Ireland. I've never been in, you know, Chris, I'm, I'm 64. And, and the thing that kind of irks me right now is I want to get to these places while I can still play at a reasonable level and still get shot. Um, so Royal County down is on that list. And of course, 
the one that's on everybody's list and it hasn't happened for me and I don't know if it ever will. I was invited twice and both times I couldn't go and I don't even want to go into the reasons why I couldn't go because I'm still crying is, is obviously a destination. To get, to get that invite twice and not be able to go. I, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, that pains me more than my kidney stone. We had to get, we had to get the, the sharp objects out of my, out of my sight <laughs> and out of my house and everything. And, and, and we had to get the rope, all the rope out of the house and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I don't even want to go into that story because it makes me cry. And speaking of, speaking of kidney stone, for the viewers out there, you know, you know, they don't know this and the listeners out there, excuse me, they don't know that we talk pretty regularly in the mornings on my way to work and we kind of catch up on golf news and, and for you, for the listeners out there, they don't know that you, you have a kidney stone right now and you haven't been able to pass it for some time. Um, how, how, how are you feeling, Chris? How, how's it going? <laughs> uh, I'm feeling, um, actually right, right this minute. Uh, I'm not in, in in a lot of pain or anything like that. Um, That's too uh, bad. From, Sorry. <laughs> from, <laughs> from, uh, from friends that have gone through this, they've 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 told me that uh, we, uh, the long the short story is it, it had kind of embedded itself about an inch from going into my bladder, and and once it it, it takes that last inch and gets in the bladder, you can the pain sort of goes away until that last little bit when it comes out. Um, but, uh, some friends told me today, my brother-in-law particularly, that, uh, it could sit in your bladder for a week or two before it decides it wants to come out. I would have guessed once it's in the bladder and I'm, I'm drinking water like a fiend. I'm going through cranberry juice, you name it. I'm drinking it to try to get this thing out. I would have guessed that with all the times I've emptied my bladder, it would have come out, but maybe that's not true, but enough well, I'm, that. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it, it, it lasts as long as my Yankees pump. So. <laughs> <laughs> well then, I hope I have it until November. So perfect, perfect, perfect. Tom, we were talking about the live tour a little bit ago, and an interesting fact that uh, that uh, that Mrs. Patry tipped us both off to right, is right. Taylor Gooch has won back to back events on the live tour. Plus, thanks to his team also winning this past week, and I know you've got your. Range goats gear on as we speak. He ranked in a raked in a cool six million dollars this past week. Four for the win, another two plus for for the team win. But the Australian taxman was all smiles. That guy came along and took a cool forty seven and a half percent of that six million dollars, or two point eight five million, as a thank you for coming down to play in Australia. If you kind of mount that up, Tom. If you if you if if Gooch goes out and gives his ca- his caddy another ten percent of that six million or six hundred k on top of that, plus his travel and expenses, boy, about half that money is going to be sitting there back in in either Australia or somebody else's pocket. How brutal is that? Well, let's also add in the fact that these players, when they come back stateside, have to pay Uncle Sam as well. So I think it's a wonderful job by Greg Norman to organize an event down in Australia to make his, his government, his national government, a little wealthier. I mean, did Greg not inform these guys, hey, listen, we're going to go play down in Australia, but you're going to give up 47.5% right off the top of whatever you make. Nice job, Greg. Really nice job there. So Taylor Goose goes down to Australia, wins a $4 million purse, $6 million with the team, and when the smoke clears, Tony Fino made more money playing in the Mexico Open. 
Okay. <laughs> well done, Greg. Well done. Congratulations, all you live guys. Hope you have a nice plane ride back. Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. Right. Tom, in the intro to tonight's show, I, I talked about how great it was to see Tony Finau uh, just hours after winning the Mexico Open out there caddying for his sons, playing at a local par three course, all the lights on. Guy goes out and, uh, you know, he, he's just a guy that gets it, right? He, to go out there, you know, a couple hours, four hours after winning a golf tournament on the PGA Tour, change, put shorts and a t-shirt on, grab a hat, grab the bags, and take the boys out to play a part three. I think that's outstanding. Well, and you know, Chris, even more so in the day and age when we hear about the greedy elite athletes, you know, holding out for more money on their contract, you know, I don't want to play for this team. I want to be traded. You know, I don't want to play for that team. Trade me away. Um, you know, it's just not the great situation for me. I want to go somewhere I can win right away. You know, we hear so many negative things about professional athletes. And to see that post and to see that guy do what he did with his kids, we need we need more Tony Finau's in the world. Don't you agree? We need more of that model athlete, that example to kids, that example to parents, that example, period, in our society. Uh, how can you not be a Tony Finau fan? How can you not? Yeah, 100%, right? And 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 Finau won by a couple of strokes over John Rahm, and and th- those two were were one two last year in the opposite way at the Mexico Open. But you want to talk about two guys that have gone a long way in the last few weeks to show us what athletes should be like, right? Yeah. Rahm, after winning the Masters, a lot of times guys will skip the next event, right? right. It, it's it's a lot, you know, the the mental piece of of winning a major takes a lot out of a guy and that sort of thing. But Rom says, no, I'm, I'm going to go to the RBC. I'm going to, I'm going to go to Hilton Head because if fans bought tickets because they wanted to see John Rom or bought tickets because they wanted to see the Masters champion, I'm going to be there to make sure they get that opportunity. It's, it's so nice. I mean, to me, listen, I'm 64, going to be 65 in October. This has been, this game has been my whole life. Uh, I'm a huge sports fan as, as you are. You know, if, if Tilly wins on TV on ESPN, I'm going to tune in and watch him, you know, whatever it is. And I, I'm so tired of Damon Green and Allen Iverson. And, you know, I, I can, we can go on forever on this thing. You know, uh, it's, a, it's so nice to see guys in our sport behaving that way. You know, it just, it's, it's awesome. And, and we just need more. We just need more of that behavior in sport in general. Maybe, maybe some special baseball players, football players, basketball players, hockey players, and, and listen, there are a lot of good guys in all those sports. Don't get me wrong, but some of the guys that aren't such good guys, looking at that as an example and saying, "Hey, you know what? We, we need that. We need to use use that as a, as our model. That's that's the way we need to behave and be an example." You know, Charles Barkley once made a, a statement about. You know, he doesn't want the responsibility of being a role model. But once you're on the spotlight, Charles, you are a role model. And and once you're in the spotlight, you are a role model. And you know what? There is a responsibility that comes with that, with that success. And, and man, you know, Arnold certainly did it. You know, Arnold King did it as well as anybody. Um, but these two guys in the last couple of weeks have been exemplary. They've been, they've been absolutely awesome. Um, and, and, and so good for the sport. So happy to see it. 
Yeah, that's one thing that I hope the PGA Tour does a little bit better job. I mean, Tiger Woods has been the face of the PGA Tour for decades. And as he is phasing out of his playing days, or at least on the PGA Tour, he maybe ends up playing more on the Champions Tour when he can start to ride a golf cart. But as we need guys that are a face of our sport, the John Roms, the Tony Finaus, the Jordan Spieth, the Justin Thomases, guys like that, I hope the PGA Tour does a great job of marketing those guys and kind of lets go a little bit of Tiger so we can get into the the new era. These are the guys, I think, that need to be the face of our sport. Yeah, and Chris, don't don't leave out Ricky Fowler. I was at Bay Hill, not this year, but last year. And I believe it was last year. Maybe it's two years ago. I, I, I don't, I'm, don't hold me to it. But Ricky had missed the cut. And I was walking past the pro shop area uh, on a Friday afternoon. It was crowded. And Ricky Fowler stood there for, I'm going to tell you, because I stood there and watched it for over an hour, well over an hour after missing a cut, signing autographs for every kid that came up to him. And the kids were all over the place, you know, because he's so popular. Um, and so, and actually, you know, that's, that's, you know, you know, I've been on, when I played for a living, I've been on the short end of missing a cut. You don't feel like hanging out and, and chatting with anybody. You really don't. You want to get your stuff out of your locker and get the hell out of there. Uh, and, and I said, man, what a great example this guy is and, and what a role model he is. And what, what about what about giving back to the game? Here he is giving back for, you know, over an hour where, you, you know, he's not happy about what just went on in his in his day. That's what we need. We need more of that. Yeah, 100%. Agree with all of that. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you online and on social media. All you have to do is come to Naples, Florida, and look for a white Chevy Silverado that's <laughs> driving around, driving around aim, aimlessly with, with no real direction, and you'll be able to find me. Uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, obviously Facebook, uh, and my website, which is just simply TomPatry.com. And Chris, again, congratulations on those awards and accolades today. So well-deserved. So awesome. You, you, you give you give back more than just about anybody and, and give us a platform to share our thoughts. And, and, and we really appreciate you very, very much. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That means a great deal to me, my friend. Tom, take care. Stay safe. Get home safely. And I look forward to already getting to spend time with you in a couple of weeks. You're the best, my friend. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. You bet. That is the great Tom Patrick again at Tom Patrick Golf on Instagram. TomPatrick.com is his website. And be sure to subscribe to his YouTube channel to get those free playing lessons and tips. They just don't come better than that guy. We are so lucky to have him as part of the show. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Linda Harto, Rick Fair, and Terry Kaler for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are 2019 Charles Schwab Cup champion. And before I get to my next guest, Linda Harto, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of domestic sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player... I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. 
So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arcos Caddy when you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited-time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T dot com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Linda Harto. This is the third time that I've had the privilege of having Linda as part of the show. Let me remind you about her background. She grew up in the countrysides of Wilmington, Delaware, and Louisville, Kentucky. She was drawn to art at the age of six. She spent the early part of her career in Chicago, where she earned her fine arts degree at the Art Institute of Chicago. Back in the 70s, she started selling her art, her prints and posters there locally. She moved near Hilton Head back in 1980, and she has since become recognized as one of the best golf artists on the planet. She's the only person to be commissioned to do annual paintings of the U.S. Open and the Open Championship by the USGA and the RNA. You can see her amazing work and purchase her prints by going online to hardtoe.com, spelled H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H dot com. And I am honored she is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Linda, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be here. Linda, I want to start our time uh, talking about the Academy of Golf Art. You are one of the amazing artists that make that up. Talk about how you all are advancing golf art beyond the fine art genre. Ah, well, we are trying to connect uh, with collectors and people just interested in golf art. Um, we're also connected a little bit with the Golf Heritage Society. We're kind of aligning our uh, organizations. And we have a lot of good plans for the future for expanding the academy. We have a, a new uh, president who's got a lot of great ideas, and we're in the process of getting those implemented. So, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff coming up. And Linda, every week you do a drawing, giving away one of your prints to the person who accurately predicts who's going to win the golf tournament that week on the PGA Tour. That's a heck of a thing for somebody to win. Talk about that. Yeah, we, we started that oh, a while ago, and it's just been very popular. And so just a lot of fun, you know, just to try to guess the winner. We have a lot of people participating, and we like to give away a print here and there. So. uh yeah, we'll be running a contest this week, too, with the Wells Fargo. And uh, we we uh, 
We had a lot of good participation on it. A lot of people like doing it. So it's fun to do. Linda, for the aspiring artists out there, remind our listeners about how you got your start doing golf landscapes. Well, it isn't something that would happen every day, but but I did get called by Augusta National Golf Club. They had seen my landscapes and asked me if I could paint a golf course. And I said, sure. <laughs> and that's how it started. That was 1984. So, yeah, I don't think that happens too often when you get a chance like that, but it happened to me. I'm very thankful for it. It started me on this journey that I've had for all these years with golf. And I couldn't be happier about that. Uh, I think just the fact that I did it for them was what led me to all the other um, courses that I did over all these years. So I'm very grateful to them for that. So let's take that story a half step further. Uh-huh. I, read, I read that you had moved down to Hilton Head uh-huh. and did a show of your landscapes, and that sort of caught the eye of one of the members of Augusta yeah. National. Is that how it worked out? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, they told the golf pros there, you know, um, Dave Spencer and Mike Klepke, and they had been looking for someone to do uh, paintings and then they were going to make prints to sell at the masters so yeah when they saw my work they really liked it so uh yeah the first one i did was the 13th hole that was in 1984 and we made prints the first time i had made prints on my work and we sold them at the 85 masters and it went so well i kept doing them for them and then pretty soon other clubs came calling and it was the start of a whole new career. (laughs) And Linda, everybody that listens to this show knows how much I love Augusta National. It's my favorite place on the planet. You have beautifully captured so many of the holes and the clubhouse. Oh, by the way, how much, how much time have you spent on property and what time of year have you gone to, to take a look and to take all the pictures that you needed in order to make the prints in the, in the uh, artwork? Well, many years, I used to go every single year to take pictures, usually around spring, you know, before the Masters. But I had gone almost every time of year, really, because uh, sometimes the lighting was just a little better at different times of the year. Um, You know, like in December or January, it's just the angle of the sun sometimes makes a difference on how it shows off the hole. And, of course, then I have a gazillion pictures of (laughs) every part of that course and also every bloom. So even if I went at a different time of year, I I could fill in all the color everyone's used to, even with a different angle of the sun. So it worked out. (laughs) Like you say, you've taken a gazillion pictures. Do you always work from pictures that you take? Or have you ever been out there with a an easel in your paints and, and away you go just sitting there, you know, looking at the subject as opposed to looking at pictures? Oh, very early on I did it with I took a sketchbook and all that, but really, you know, I was much better at gathering uh reference just with the camera and working on uh 
putting all that together back in the studio. I, I didn't do much outdoor painting, and, and it's pretty hard to do on a golf course, I want to tell you. Is that right? Why? Yeah, oh, gee, I wonder. <laughs> a little matter of players and golf balls and being <laughs> Play is not exactly uh, acceptable on the golf course. So I really learned how to get in between players and get the pictures I needed at the right time of day. And, uh, you know, like doing St. Andrews, you couldn't, there's no place to get out of play there. So you sort of have to follow along with the group and get your pictures that way. <laughs> so. You know, every place has a different challenge. No doubt. Between weather and everything else. <laughs> when you were doing the U.S. Open and the Open paintings, how far in advance were you going out to visit the property so that your prints were available by the time it was tournament week? Oh, well, for I had to be out there at least a year before to get the reference because I had to, and sometimes two years because I actually had to have the painting and the print done the year before the uh, the U.S. Open. Now, on the British Open, I could, you know, cut that a little closer. But on the U.S. Open, it was almost two years in advance to, to do the reference. Because I had to do the print production. And then uh, the USGA had a, a catalog that came out in the fall before the following year's tournament. So I had to have the product in there by then. Linda, in 2006, the New York Times did an article about you titled The Rembrandt of the Back Nine. Oh, boy. Yeah. At, <laughs> at the end of that article, you were quoted as saying, golfers don't look down on a course because they haven't played it. They look at every course with a kind of awe. And I really love that. Talk okay. about what you meant by that. That's true. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter if they've never played it. There are so many courses, of course, they're familiar with from major tournaments, oh, like Augusta, of course. I mean, how many people have actually played Augusta, you know, that love it? Uh, not that many, proportionally. And uh, it's just great. They they just appreciate it on that level, though. And that that that's good for me. You know, that makes me feel like I'm really doing something for them, placing them there. Reminding them of the, maybe the tournament, just being there for going just to the tournament is very special for so many people. Just reminding them of that time. Let's take that a step further. I okay. mean, when you look back at all of the paintings that you've done and, and all of the people that have your paintings hanging, whether it's in a clubhouse or in their home, it's got to be great to reflect back on it. It's got to give you some real sense of, satisfaction that you've made a difference in the game of golf but also in people's lives because you do give them the memories of having been there or their favorite tournament or that sort of thing that's got to be great to just in your quiet times does that does that make you feel good yes absolutely <laughs> that has been the most gratifying thing about the whole genre I don't think that would happen in any other genre, really. I can't imagine uh, because the pe people are so involved with the landscape in a way that they're not maybe in just general landscape. I mean, it, it, it's 
very meaningful to them. And if you've ever been to St. Andrews or some of those old courses in Scotland, it's just there's a, a metaphysical kind of a feeling that you get there. You get a sense of history and that you is very meaningful and very palpable. And I like to try to convey those feelings because I get them. <laughs> Do you have a favorite course that you visited and painted because of the setting or how much it either means to all of us or how much it means to you? Uh, besides Augusta, of course, you could say Pebble Beach, uh, you know, all the really famous ones, uh, St. Andrews, uh, Royal County Down, I think, is pretty stunning when you're there <laughs> and very memorable. And, you know, many of them, uh, just because of their surrounding landscape, just make some very powerful images. Do you have a bucket list of any courses left that you haven't had an opportunity to paint yet? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> I, I just wish they didn't take me so much time because there are so many. Uh, I haven't done Cypress Point. I really want to do that. And, oh, gosh, there's so many of them, really. There's so many Scottish and Irish and and elsewhere in the world, you know. There's great ones in Australia and New Zealand and geez, I see the picture, so I go, Wow, I'd like to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, I, we I can't do them all. <laughs> no doubt. Linda, we're all hypercritical of ourselves, no more so than than those of us that play the game of golf. We're all guilty of a lot of negative self talk out on the golf course. As an artist, I'm guessing it's the same. Do you do you have a painting that took longer than you wanted it to take because whether you got partway through it or to the end and you thought, you know what, I need a do-over here? Uh, I have never done a do-over. I struggle. I do most of my struggles before I put any paint on the canvas, to tell you the truth. That's, that's when I'm looking over all the reference material I have. And if I get mad at anything, then it's it's more or less that why didn't I take a picture of this? <laughs> you know, now I want it. And I'm how many miles away from this place? Uh, and sometimes I'll go back to a course when I don't get what I want. But most of my struggles are preceding the painting. By the time I'm doing the painting, pretty much know exactly what I want to do. On the opposite side of that coin, if the Metropolitan Museum of Art called and said, we'd like to feature some of your work, which paintings would you give them? Oh, wow. Well, uh, there's quite a few at Augusta. I've done some 25 paintings there, and there's 25 U.S. Open paintings. Uh, I think Shinnecock is a stunning course, and the two paintings I've done there uh Again, one of my favorites, Royal County Down, Royal Dornick, um, the St. Andrews, the Turnberries, so many. Going back into earlier parts of your career, I read that you ride horses. Is it true that you would hope to paint horses, but the market just really wasn't great for that? Yeah, I, I, this was in the early 80s when um, I had always painted horses when I was young. Especially, I, that's all I drew was endless horse pictures, and and I rode horses. I was 
just loved horses. So that was a big subject. And um, much later, when I moved down here from Chicago, I thought maybe trying to be an equine artist might be something to pursue. So I started to jury into the Academy, Equine Academy, American Academy of Equine Art. And I went to a couple of their shows and I wasn't, I was a little put off because the, the horses that I was painting, if the people, if it wasn't their breed, they weren't interested in it. And I thought, well, that's weird. And if they, if they, uh, raised quarter horses and I showed them a picture, a painting I had done of Arabian, they were like, well, can you paint a quarter horse? And I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they kind of looked down their nose at anything that wasn't their breed or their bloodline or their genre and horses. And I, and then at the same time, I was starting to do the golf paintings. And those people were just, in, you know, in awe of everything I did. I said, well, I like this much better. <laughs> this is a much better crowd for me <laughs> Linda so, just just a couple more before I let you go remind our listeners again about how they can find your website plus how they can follow you on social media yeah well the best thing to do is sign up for the emails because that's where you get the guest the winner emails so you can sign up you know to try to win a print and everything is on the website there, all the different, you know, there's Twitter and Facebook and all the usual stuff. So anyway, well, just harto.com. Very simple. <laughs> well, Linda, it's always wonderful getting to have you as part of this show. I hope we get the privilege of having you come back and, and update us on all the great things that you're doing, because your work is absolutely some of the all time best that I've ever seen. I can't well, thank you enough for all you do for the game. Well, I appreciate that. And believe me, I appreciate everybody who who gives me a comment like that. And it makes it all worthwhile. Believe me. Very grateful. Linda, stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Chris. Take care. You too, Linda. That is Linda Harto. And a special shout out to Sally Sportsman who connected Linda and I originally. Thank you, Sally, for putting tonight's interview together. Linda is a treat to get to spend time with. Uh, be sure to follow her again online. Again, it's H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H dot com and at Harto on Twitter. Just a, a, an unbelievably talented lady who has brought joy to so many of our lives through her artwork. If you haven't seen it, you got to go check it out. Like I say, I am a huge fan of her work and of Augusta National and the the paintings and the prints that she has out there for that course, plus the uh, St. Andrews and all the others that she mentioned. Outstanding stuff. I mean, you, you put that up on your wall and you're going to have something special that you and your family will cherish forever. So huge thank you for Linda for coming back and being a part of the show. Like I say, I hope we have the privilege of catching up with her again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Rick Fair, I want to remind you about Two Under, men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. 
Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scony.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scony.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right. Now back with me here on Next on the Tee is a two-time winner on the PGA Tour, and that is Rick Fair. Let me remind you a little bit about Rick's background. He is from Seattle, Washington. He won the Greater Seattle Junior Championship three times. In 1979, he won the Washington State Junior title, and he also won the PGA National Junior Championship that year at Callaway Gardens, which just is a little bit south of me here in Atlanta. Played his college golf at BYU, where he earned his bachelor's degree in finance. He was named All-American in 1982, 83, and 84, and he was the WAC Conference Player of the Year all three of those years as well. Plus, he helped the team win the WAC Conference Championship all four years he was at BYU. He was a member of the Cougars National Championship team in 1981, along with our friend Richard Zokel. Rick won the 1982 Western Amateur. In 83, he was a member of the Walker Cup team that defeated the Great Britain and Ireland team 13 and a half to 10 and a half. Rick was a low amateur in the 1984 Masters and U.S. Open, turned pro in the fall of 84 and then joined the PGA Tour in 85, got his first win at the 1986 BC Open. Win number two came at the 1994 Disney World Oldsmobile Classic. Along with those two wins, he's finished second nine times and has 41 top tens. In 1999, he was inducted into the BYU Hall of Fame, and I am honored. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me again. Look forward to chatting with you. Rick, as a player, you had a great deal of success at the junior golf level, and now you're one of the top instructors in our game. How does the junior program that you grew up playing in compared to what the junior programs are like now? Well, certainly a lot less structured. Uh, there's, there wasn't quite as much, uh, information out there. And I think, uh, while there were fantastic coaches, I think that coaching has evolved and, uh, we've been able to develop, uh, great players at a younger age, but, um, yeah, it, it has changed a lot. I, uh, there are aspects of, of, uh, the way I learned and how I developed my game that 
I carry over into my coaching. And a lot of that is the kind of the organic stuff that happens by playing a lot and figuring out what causes what. Rick, a lot of success in tournament golf has to do with uh, the mental approach that we have and being able to deal with pressure. How do you teach your students to deal with pressure that comes with competing in tournaments? Well, I, I feel like most junior golfers who are, you know, so many of them are aspirational of playing college golf and maybe beyond. And uh, they're, they play so many, this is in my opinion, so many tournaments now that uh, um, certainly they're tournament ready, but, but sometimes the ability to, to grow and mature as a player, uh, the stuff that can, that needs to be done in between and out of competition, uh, you know, sometimes that, that suffers, but, but I think mainly, uh, there, there's a couple approaches. One is when you develop skills or let's talk about the actual physical skills of whether it be swing technique, athleticism, those kind of things. Uh, the higher you can attain, higher level you can attain with that, the greater confidence you have in your abilities. So, uh, certainly, Knowing that, it, that there's confidence and, and a mental strength that that comes from believing that that you can handle almost anything that comes your way, and then of course there's the the training, specific training into you know talking about mindset and, and that sort of thing, and uh, it's just, it's it's super challenging for for junior golfers because they're maturing, you know, and then they're not fully mature yet, you know, as far as their emotional development, so. It's a rough ride, but, uh, you know, some players accomplish that or figure it out at a young age and, and others might come along and mature later. But certainly we have a lot of, a lot of tools we can offer people now. Sports psychology has evolved and is better than ever. There's more and more programs to plug, plug young players into. So, uh, there's just a lot of good ones now. Ricky, you, you mentioned mindset and a lot of your peers have talked to me about. There's a difference in playing golf and playing tournament golf. How are those two things different? Well, I think uh, I think a lot of a lot of even recreational golfers can can uh, experience that or have experienced that at some level. Uh, you get into club championships, and all of a sudden, people's scores go up ten to fifteen strokes, and so so they're experiencing it like what the heck happened. And and part of that is that many of them don't typically putt out and then all of a sudden it's required. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's, uh, some of it has to do with an imbalance of how we view the game we're playing and certainly humans and, and golfers specifically who have balanced their lives and recognize that, that, that golf tournament is not literally the end of the world and that, uh, if we can detach our ego and our identity a bit from it, that can certainly help. And then, and then the other is, uh, I just think that, uh, yeah, plenty of golfers have either neglected or undertrained in, uh, pre- in, uh, preparing for that pressure. And again, I go back to as much as I have been through, uh, the flow code golf training with Rick Sessinghouse and, uh, I've been exploring that for years, uh, that side of the game. I still feel that golfers who play enough golf, and I know there's a, there's an economic and a, and a time constraint for most people, but, uh, an awful lot of golfers spend most of their time on the practice tee 
and aren't able to play a whole lot or don't prioritize that. So they haven't developed the skill of adapting to situations and um, knowing specifically what to happen or how to handle certain situations. So, so it's kind of a, it's a multi-pronged approach, but, but certainly, uh, you know, Bob Rotella probably kind of kicked things off and, and just, you've got a lot of popular sports psychologists and, and, uh, you can plug into their work and, and their training and, and it's a good idea for most golfers. You were a part of the 1983 Walker Cup team. U.S. Amateur Champion Nathaniel Crosby, Brad Faxon, also a part of that team. Playing for your country has got to amp up the pressure to an even higher level. What was it like putting on a USA shirt and hat and going out and playing for your country? Yeah, it was obviously an honor, number one. And then secondly, it was a great experience. And and I was fortunate enough to play. Not that there's anything wrong with playing one that's that's held here in the U.S., but Played over at Royal Liverpool, uh, which we play later this year in another big event. But, um, you know, I think that there's, I suppose it's like a professional sports team that, that maybe bonds more when they're out on the road, but certainly traveling across, across the pond, so to speak, and, and spending those long days of practice and preparation and then matches with, with those guys. Um, that's kind of, it's a very unique experience. And I think that. I think one of the pressures is there's the, the most patriotic folks might, that might be a source of their pressure, but I just think taking an individual sport and then creating a team event, it's just not something that's every day for, for players like myself. So there's sort of that, uh, maybe feeling like a fish out of water a little bit. And then, and then of course in the, uh, foursomes matches or four ball. You're letting down your partner or certainly feel like it. So I think there's added pressure in a team event. Just I can deal with messing up, uh, when it's, when it's myself that suffers. But when you let down a partner or teammates, you know, that's added pressure. You mentioned being at Royal Liverpool and this year's open championship is there. What do you remember about playing Royal Liverpool? No trees. (laughs) So, and, uh, and, and lots of wind. Uh, I, I, the layout, that was a number of years ago, Chris, but I guess it'll be 40 years, but, uh, I know the routing has changed just a bit, but, uh, I do remember, I don't know if it was the 16th hole or somewhere about that point in the golf course where one day par four, I hit driver and a, and a wet pitching wedge. The next day I hit a couple of drivers and it was 30 yards short. So wow, that's, that's kind of that, that thing that can happen, you know, over there on seaside courses. But, um, I, I was, Partnered up with, uh, at that time, our captain was also a player. Uh, so player captain, Jay Siegel. He was my partner in all the, uh, the foursomes events. And so, um, that was, that was a fun experience. And, uh, you know, neat golf course. It's, uh, it's certainly, it was unlike anything I had ever played up to that point in my life. And it was a great experience. We're a few weeks north of this year's Masters Tournament. You were low amateur in 1984. You also got an opportunity to play there the year before that in 83. How'd you learn how to play the golf course? Were there some players that you reached out to to play some practice rounds and pick their brains? Well, actually, uh, with the BYU connection, uh, I, I certainly didn't reach out to them, but I, it must have been my college coach arranged for me to play practice round with Billy Casper. So there were dating, dating things a little bit. And so he had obviously, he's a master's champion, played there many, many times. So he, 
he, he gave me a little advice, uh, you know, as we played that practice round, one of which is still super relevant, which was he, he asked me to promise to, regardless of where the whole location was, to try to hit the green over the front, right across the front bunker on, on 12. <laughs> and uh, I think there's a lot of players that wish they had done that through the years. But um, with that shifting wind, if if you happen to misjudge it, if it comes up short, you're in the bunker, not in the in Ray's Creek. So uh, anyway, I did get have some good advice, but I think I I grew up on on hilly, very sloped, fast greens uh, at Sandpoint Country Club here in Seattle, and and I think uh, seeing dramatic lines on dramatic slopes on fast greens, I probably was very well prepared um, to play at Augusta. You guys had some bad weather that year in the third round, just like they did this year. What do you remember about dealing with the weather at Augusta yeah. National? <laughs> Interesting you bring that up. Uh, yeah, the, the sky darkened <laughs> a lot. You know, it was midday and it it looked like, uh, you know, the, the sun was setting. It was just getting so dark. And I remember being on, on the 13th hole and I was uh, paired with Gary Player. And um, I, remember, I recall hitting a, five would just before the before the siren blew um and hit it in there and got it about 12 feet to the front pan and made the putt for eagle so that was right, right when the storm was about to hit um but yeah it's uh um it's it, the memory's a bit fuzzy as far as you know rain delays and all that but certainly remember that it was very stormy when i had that kind of neat experience having been low am at the masters in the u.s open that year do you, do you, where do you have the trophies? Because if, if it were me, I'd have a spotlight on them. So when the fellas came over, it was the first thing they saw when they walked in the door. Where do you keep that sort of stuff? Well, the uh, the uh, little the silver cup for the low amateur at the Masters is uh, that's that's on a, a hutch down in our living room, and then I believe the low low amateur for the U.S. Open is simply a medal, and that's stored away somewhere. So. Um, yeah, but those, uh, I, I'm not much for mementos and trophies. It's experiences that are, um, the stuff that, that I value. And, uh, I suppose there may be a day where I forget all those things, but, um, anyway, they're, 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 they're around the house somewhere. As that low am at the Masters, you were there in Butler Cabin getting interviewed by then Augusta National Chairman Hord Harden on the CBS broadcast and, you're up there on the podium on 18 being presented with that with that trophy and uh, getting whisked into Butler cabin knowing that you're about to get interviewed and and be a part of this huge ceremony for the green jacket and all what was all of that like for you as it as i look back and it's on youtube it's embarrassing i i, uh, I was i was not very dynamic in the butler cabin but um no obviously very few have had that opportunity and and again, that's an honor. I was disappointed though, and I probably carried it in my countenance that I shot 75 the last day to, to fall back to 25th. I was up there, uh, I think started the day t- tied for 12th and had, had, had visions of, of finishing much higher. But, uh, yeah, to be in there with Sevi presenting the jacket to Ben Crenshaw, um, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty special, special, um, special time. Sam Bennett was a low amateur this year and was right in the thick of it for the majority of the tournament. What did you think about what you saw from him? Yeah, fantastic. 
uh, there's, and he's, I think at that time, I think he was only ranked at like the 48th best college player. And so, uh, you know, it's just so many great players and, and you give those guys opportunities. They can compete with the best. And, um, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not that shocked. Uh, I, I see D1 college players frequently up here, the University of Washington team and, and, uh, see them play in tournaments and, and the, the level of play, right? They're, they've, they've got the tools. It's just a matter of putting it all together. And, uh, so good for him. I know it's, it's a memorable week. I think he probably feels the same way I felt. He kind of faltered off on the last day, but, um, yeah, it certainly did him a good. And he's a worldwide known name right now. You make it back to Augusta National in 86. You ended up finishing tied for 36. Did you stick around to see what was one of the great final rounds in Masters history? Did you see Jack win? I did not. I did not. I, I heard some roars. Um, I can't remember exactly where I was on the golf course, but, uh, yeah, it, it would have been nice to have a front row seat, but I think I was probably off property when he finished up. Uh, but certainly I think in, at least in, in the golf world, that's probably one of the most significant wins of all time. In 85, you're in the thick of it at the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills. You're only two back after the shooting opening rounds of 69 and 67. Talk about what it's like going from being a low amateur at a U.S. Open to the next year being in contention to win it. Yeah, I, a lot of good stuff you're you're referencing from the early 80s. So I think I had every reason to be confident. And uh, yeah, that obviously U.S. Opens are difficult and Oakland Hills is a super challenging golf course and it was set up tough. And uh, you know, it, <laughs> it's what golf all your listeners who play golf understand this that some days it seems pretty easy and other days not so much and it's narrowly missing narrowly narrowly missing fairways and and hitting fairies at the u.s open it makes a big difference and uh i i started falling back further behind the leaders and then uh uh on sunday i was playing with dave Barr and uh, T.C. Chen, that was the the year T.C. Chen on the front nine, probably the, about the sixth hole, somewhere in there. Famously two-chipped, which is was a penalty back then, and I can't remember if he made a double or triple bogey, but I think when we saw that hit the, saw the leaderboard get updated with that, we we felt like we had a chance again, but uh, I wasn't able to to rally, but, uh, you know, again, that was a early in my career before I was a PGA Tour member, and and that week really launched my professional career. It kind of got me out, got me some status for the P Tour, and, and off I went. Get your first win at the BC Open. You won that tournament by two strokes over Larry Mize. And I read that your goal that week was just to make it inside the top 125 so you could be exempt for the 87 season. Well, you did a little bit better than that. Talk about getting your first tour victory. Yeah, uh, I did not anticipate a week like that at all. And, uh, interesting. I played the year before and, uh, I did not play well. I, I, maybe I was burned out and tired, but I didn't really enjoy the week. And, and so I returned to a site that I didn't have positive memories about and just got rolling. And, uh, I, I was wedging it in there tight on every par five. It was a little soft. So I wasn't, I was laying up and wedging it in and I don't know what my birdie rate was on the par fives, but, uh, 
I just, I can't remember what, 69, 68, 67, something like that. And just kind of rolled through it and uh, stood on 18 with a two shot lead. And even then that didn't feel like enough, but I managed to get it to the house and, and get that first win. It felt great. Now you had a three stroke lead over Larry Mize and seven over everybody else going into the final round. To your point, you shoot 69 to win it. What's it like for you going into that final round? Because so many times we see guys that, you know, have kind of a big lead over the majority of the field, start to play prevent defense and, and, and then they start to lose that lead. And what was your mindset? Do you remember what your mindset was that day to keep the hammer down to shoot 69 and not let anyone really get back in the tournament? Yeah, it's, I, I don't recall the details of my mindset, but, uh, I, I do know that the opening tee shots, probably the narrowest one on the golf course. So, uh, it was, you know, if you can get, get past that first tee shot, uh, you know, where, you know, it's, it gets, it gets a little bit easier. And, uh, you know, I, I was playing, playing so well and consistently that, that, uh, it was probably easier for me to trust and believe than, than those weeks where maybe, you're doing it with smoke and mirrors and feel like things could fall apart. But, uh, you know, I think, I think it was just that golf course was a good fit for me and, and I felt comfortable there. It's, it's very similar to a lot of the courses here in the Northwest or in the Seattle area, very tree lined and narrow and, and smaller greens. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was my week. Um, but certainly, you know, the nerves are there. I think, uh, you know, even the greatest of all time will talk about whatever you want to call it, the butterflies or whatever. It's a matter of taking that and embracing the opportunity and, and sort of believing, Hey, this is what I've worked for. Um, you want to get in a situation where you feel that way. And I just think that I was fortunate enough to have had a lot of success prior to getting on tour and had won a lot of tournaments. So I suppose I was comfortable with winning and comfortable in that position that served me well. You had a gap for a while in your career before you get your second win, but you kept knocking on the door in the early 90s. You're in a playoff in the 91 Greater Hartford Open at the 92 Hope Chrysler Classic at the Memorial Tournament, again at the Sprint International. Talk about the fortitude to keep knocking on the door and not getting discouraged. Yeah, yeah. And, and those were the highlights. The, the, the second place finishes, the playoff losses, those were the good weeks. There were... A lot of struggles. And I think, uh, that your average, uh, journeyman PGA tour player is going to have years or parts of years where everything's rolling. And then other times where you're working your tail off, just trying to make cuts again. So had an awful lot of that, that type of experience between 1986 and 1994 and hung in there. And, uh, you know, it came together again there at the Disney, but. Uh, I probably played some of my best golf in the, in the early nineties. And, you know, 94 was a year I, I hadn't played particularly well until I think when I got to Denver, the international tournament that we used to have and started gaining some momentum and had a really, really strong fall. And then, you know, again in contention and pulled it off. So, um, two for about 400 is, is my win record or win rate. So, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, we cherish those, though. Yeah, at that 94 Disney World Automobile Classic, you you win that tournament by two over Craig Stadler and Fuzzy Zeller, and you and Stadler were tied going into the final round. But I read that you almost didn't make it to the golf course for your tee time on Sunday. You get there about 15 minutes before you're supposed to tee off. 
Talk about the events of that morning and how you're able to calm your nerves, because I got to imagine you were getting stressed out. I was. I was. Uh, so uh, we were we meaning my wife, Terry, and our first two oldest two boys uh, were enjoying the parks at Disney and having a fun time. And and I had that late tea time, I don't know, probably two o'clock or so. And I, I told her, just go ahead and take we had a courtesy car. And uh told her to to go ahead and take the courtesy car and go go enjoy the park with the the boys before we fly home the next day and and then I just had submitted a request to have the transportation folks come pick me up where we were staying and so everything was all arranged well the 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 driver didn't show up, and uh I got a little nervous when they were five minutes late and then ten and then twenty and um at this point, everybody listening knows that I'm not a young man because you're talking about tournaments in the 1980s and uh, it was prior to cell phones. And so I run back into our condo and get the yellow pages out and I'm trying to call a cab and everything else. So now I'm panicked. Not just am I not going to have much warm up time. I may miss, miss the tea time tied for the lead. And, um, uh, finally the courtesy car driver showed up. I guess they got a little bit sidetracked and, um, get to the golf course, like you said, about 15 minutes before my tea time, which is about an hour, hour and a half later than I had hoped. And um, I w- they whisked me over to the driving range and I hit about 10 balls and warm up and headed to the first tee and um, did my thing. I actually played a pretty solid front nine. So it may have robbed me of the opportunity to get nervous. Uh, I was too worried about just getting there. I probably didn't build up much. Uh, much anxiety over how I was going to play. It was like a victory just to get there. So uh, it all worked out. You hit your tee shot on the par three twelfth into a buried lie in the bunker, but you managed to blast it out and make a six footer to save par. Sadler, meanwhile, was birdied four of his first nine holes. How key was that sand save to you going on and getting the win? Yeah, it it was, it was, uh, Craig was obviously on a roll and, and I hit it. Obviously missed the green and, and caught a bad lie. And so things could have, uh, really spiraled the wrong direction. But yeah, that was a, you know, a great up and down. I think that, uh, that's, that was certainly one of my strengths back in the day was, uh, my short game. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there were at that point, there were still whatever six holes left, but it did seem to, uh, I don't recall that. That, that I felt that, okay, I've got this now. Uh, I was literally kind of a one shot at a time kind of guy, but uh, certainly if I had made bogey and fallen further behind or, uh, or that it would have made a difference, but uh, you know, it had me in a, in a good spot. And I think Craig ended up missing a short putt on, on 15 that kind of gave me a, a little bit of breathing room. And so was able to go up 18 with a two shot lead. Rick, you recently tweeted out that, I have so many thoughts regarding the pushing and shoving taking place for control of the direction and future of professional golf. Time for me to brush off the pen and start blogging. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about what's going on right now at the professional level? Well, you know, it seems to be, at least from my perspective, I guess I've, since I, I put that tweet out there, I've sort of backed off and just recognized that I don't think many people are really that interested in what Rick Fair thinks. And, Certainly, I'm not going to have any influence on any direction of professional golf. 
and certainly it can it can come across as oh i'm i'm an old fart but uh you know i think that my my general view is that is i'm concerned that the fan base and me and the corporate uh partners of professional golf might get turned off a bit by the conversation you know when you have athletes now in in golf making the kind of money they're making and then having some big name players communicate dissatisfaction uh with how things are done and um i think that having been a a, a board member on the pga tour policy board uh when i was on tour i think i have a pretty good understanding of how the business operates and i don't expect everyone to feel that it's it's run exactly how they would like it but it's unfortunate i feel that that there throughout the years not just this era with live but throughout the years there there have been a number of pga tour members who fail to understand how the business works and and that misunderstanding sometimes kind of leads people to make the wrong comments but um uh, but those those large chunks of money that were offered to players uh it's very tempting and uh, you know, life is life's a lot easier when you have quite a bit of money, and and that guaranteed stuff is something new to our sport. Certainly, the elite players worked their way up to a point where they had massive endorsement deals, and now, of course, when you mention Sam Bennett, I can only imagine the NIL money and all of that. Right? That it's just it's changed a ton, and uh, uh. It's it's good, right? It's providing financial security for more players, but I just don't care for the dialogue and the, the bitterness that that seems to be out there. This opportunity came around when you were on tour, right? Wasn't Greg talking about a a world golf tour back in the nineties when you were out there playing? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that you know that being uh, squashed or quelched by, I guess it was probably end of Dean Beeman's era and the start of Tim Fincham's era that, um, you know, the PGA tour managed to kind of maintain their hold on professional golf and, and control the schedule. And, uh, so I understand where others might feel like there wasn't an opportunity to do new things, but, um, uh, you know, certainly all the way back to Dean Beeman, um, uh, the PGA tour was always a priority to, to provide as many playing opportunities as possible. And I recall when we had on the West Coast, we'd have frost delays and things like that. And, and the, the second round wasn't completed until sometime Saturday morning. Uh, our rules officials had suggested, you know, reducing the field sizes, uh, to, to, to manage that situation. And, and Dean, uh, said, no way, no way. We're not taking 12 playing opportunities away from guys. So. Uh, that's certainly changed, right? And I think there's a lot of external pressure on Jay Monahan and his staff and the board to, uh, shrink field sizes and, uh, re- you know, have no cut events. And, uh, so obviously that, that then, uh, is fewer, fewer starts for, for journeyman players. But, um, but the business of golf, I know that people are buying tickets and tuning in to see those big names. So I understand it, but. There's a lot's changed in the last 30 years. So I got to get your thoughts on the idea of rolling the golf ball back. What do you think about the proposed model local rule to do it? It's fine. I, I, 
uh, I support that. I, in general, I just feel that um, pulling distance back, whether it be with a golf ball or or some in some other manner, uh, that that's obviously the the one that's been decided upon. I don't think you're going to see uh, driver configurations change and and all of that. But uh, no, I support it. I, I don't think that. Um, I think people are making a lot bigger deal out of it than it than they need to. Um, if if you pull the best players in the world back five percent or whatever the number is, the game hasn't changed. And you know, certainly, the argument that that golf courses will become great courses will become obsolete. I don't know about obsolete; they'll certainly be um, made fun of <laughs> when players are hitting it over corners and 20 yards in front of a green when the hole was intended to kind of go around the trees. And um, there's, there's plenty of, especially the younger fans think it's cool. And, and obviously seeing somebody crush it is exciting. Uh, but, but I do feel that, that it's not a big inconvenience to anyone. Uh, even, even the amateurs. I honestly, I think that if every golfer woke up tomorrow and the balls in their bag were, were the rollback balls. I don't think anybody would enjoy the game less. That's just my opinion. Rick, you tweeted out yesterday that there is a short list of things that all great ball strikers do. What are those things? Yeah, I should have clarified. I think that I understand there's why somebody would say, well, they, they hit the center of the face often. And uh, that's absolutely true. I guess I should have qualified that, that more kind of from a uh, the dynamics of a golf swing. What, what do they all do? And, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of different looking swings. Uh, you got Finau and Rom and Dustin Johnson and, right. You've got historically Jim Furyk and then you've got Adam Scott, who's somehow is a model golf swinger, Tiger Woods, but, um, they actually do some things identically. And, uh, so certainly as far as the order of movement, we call it the kinematic sequence that, that, you know, when the club changes directions and moves towards the ball, um, you know, those players, every single one of them, the pelvis moves first and then the, the thorax or the chest and then the lead arm and then the club. And, you know, the folks I, I coach and, and work with, uh, the ones that struggle, uh, have that almost in reverse. So, uh, you know, not everyone organizes that in the backswing the same, but but certainly on the way down, there's an awful lot of similarity. So, um, so if I'm going to coach around uh, any principles or absolutes, those are the ones I'm going to coach around, which are the ones that you know exist among all good all good ball strikers. You also tweeted out that you'd like to have a career mulligan, and you were at your best when you were 20 years old or in your 20s. What would you like to go back and change? Don't uh, uh, be careful about swing coaches. Uh, you know, it's just uh, here I am in, in the business. And and I think that the way I coach and the amount of time I spend in professional development is is very much uh, because of getting worse in an effort to get better. And I know I'm not the only story of some player who was really, really good that then in an attempt to get better or to fix something uh went the other direction so um that would be my career mulligan which it would be uh either certainly see a different different coach 
Um, Butch Harmon would have served me well, knowing his style and his approach. But but often uh, the issue is not a wrist angle or anything like that. It's simply, in my case, I probably was playing the wrong shot shape uh, uh, for the wrist angles and club face uh, orientation that I had. So, um, you know, so I try to be a very good critical thinker as a coach and, and find solutions that are not disruptive or devastating. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the instruction I received was all well-intentioned. Um, you know, the, the coach or coaches that I saw wanted me to play, play well, just as bad as I did. And, uh, I just think that, uh, that would be my mulligan, which would be kind of stay away from changing golf swing changes. Obviously, I was good enough when I was in college. I mean, we, I probably have more, uh, you, when you were given the little background of, of my accomplishments, there was an awful lot of that stuff in the, in the early to mid eighties and, and, uh, you know, was near contention going into the final round at the masters and, so I really didn't need to change anything. I just needed to mature and, and, and know how what I had worked better. So anyway, I think it's good advice for a lot of good players. So w- what were you chasing in your mind? Was it, was it kind of in that gap when, when you weren't winning that you thought I need to change something here to be, to be better? What, what in your mind said I need to do something differently? Well, I was missing quite a few cuts and for an extended period of time. So it was reasonable to think, Hey, I need to, I need to get out of this funk. And, uh, there, there can be sort of a belief system that we look at golf swing first. And, and that's, that culture still exists now. And, and I, I would, I would want to have my performance looked at a little differently if I had, had an advisor again back in the, whenever it was the late eighties and, and look at the other things like, you know, we it could be something going on in our personal life is affecting us, our mental and emotional state. And as a result, we're getting sloppy or, or we're not into it. And um, there's just so many different things that, that contribute to poor play and even poor ball striking, um, you know, with what we've learned now about uh, the flow state or being in the zone that, you know, somebody, if they if they lose focus or attention uh, easily, or it's on the wrong thing, that can affect ball striking and scoring. And so, um, I, I guess my approach is very holistic now. And and I was hiring people to fix what really didn't need fixing, in in my opinion, um, which was golf swing. So um, there's a lot more to golf than uh, than what your swing looks like. And so I I. I always had a bowed or a wrist inflection is what we call it now. And, uh, I played great golf with that. <laughs> and, um, that was determined to be my problem. <laughs> and so I worked for months and months to, to change my, my backswing or takeaway and get my wrist, wrist in a different position at the top, which changed club face orientation and. After countless, countless hours and excruciating effort, I got there. And the problem was I didn't know how to hit it from there. So it looked great on video, but, but, uh, I did not have 10,000 hours, so to speak, striking it from, from that wrist position at the top. So, um, I never fully recovered. 
uh, the other, my the other strengths of my game allowed me to stay on tour and, and grab that second win. But, um, I was a much better ball striker in college than I was late in my PGA tour career. Rick, just a couple more before I let you go. And when I talk to a lot of your peers now, back in the day, they were trying to figure out by digging it out of the dirt. I didn't have the technology that we have today. Talk about learning the golf swing and, and, and what it was like for you growing up and, and learning how to, you know, control your ball flight and, and, and course correct and that sort of thing versus now we have so much technology and so much data, how different it is. Yeah. I think that. That, that it's beneficial for sure, the technology we have, as long as it's, uh, used intentionally and, uh, you know, it's a balanced approach to skill development. And, and ultimately, right. We, we need to hit a golf shot. And that's, that's the goal. The skill is striking it solid, controlling club face and, and controlling distance. And then, of course, if you have a lot of club head speed, that makes the game a lot easier. So. It's really simple when we look at it that way. It's just how does a player develop those skills? And, uh, certainly a lot of the devices uh, that, that measure things, whether it be what the ball does, what the club does, what the body does, um, all those different things. It's helpful. And I think it just, uh, accelerates the learning process. But ultimately, you know, there's sort of, uh, I think at times it seems, at least in social media, that there's an attack on, uh, this concept of having feels. And I, you know, honestly, I don't think we have anything else, uh, you know, in our, you know, that brain, that command to, to muscles to move a certain way. And, and, and so creating movement and then developing adaptability. That's the part that I think I benefit from growing up is that I played so much golf and grew up without a driving range for the most part that I just learned to what to do in different situations and how to make the golf ball do different things. And of course, now we can talk about the golf balls different. It doesn't curve as much, doesn't spin as much, but, uh, but I think, I think that's, that's advice I have for, uh, for folks is I, I feel like there it's rare to run across somebody that plays enough golf to become really good. And I, like I said, there's economic and time limitations, but, uh, you know, there's just nobody's going to be a great player without getting out there and on the field of play and figuring things out. Rick, you're now a director of instruction up there outside of Seattle. Let our listeners know how they can come and get coached by you. Yeah. So the easiest way is uh, uh, Fair Golf. So it's F E H R golf. So that's my website, fairgolf.com, Twitter, Instagram, same, same handle, Fair Golf. Uh, I teach at uh, the golf club at Newcastle in Newcastle, Washington, just outside Bellevue. And, uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've got, I love to have more, more folks to help. And, uh, I, I love what I'm doing. I love my career. Rick, it has been a huge thrill to have you back as part of the show tonight and, and learning about your career and all the great things you're doing now as one of the top instructors in our game. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime soon. I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Rick, take care. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay. Thank you. See you, Rick. See you. That is the great Rick Fair, a marvelous player and now a top instructor in our game. Follow him on Twitter again, at FairGolf, F-E-H-R Golf, and at FairGolf.com online. 
a tremendous guest, a great player. So such a wonderful guy. Did so many great things as a junior player. Achieved great things again at BYU. Won a national championship there. Won two times out on the PGA Tour. Now doing a great job as an instructor. So much fun having him here. Really privileged and looking forward to having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Terry Kaler, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to adelgolf.com. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried squares? Try the new speed bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z. Com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special. And book your tea time today. Again, that's Caledonia Golf and Fish Club.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Terry Kaler. Let me remind you a little bit about Terry's background. He's from Cuero, Texas, which is a small town southeast of San Antonio. Terry graduated with his degree in marketing from Texas A&M. He was the founder and president of Ray Cook Golf back in 1995. In 2011, he became the founder and president of Score Golf, which produced some of the very most innovative wedges and in their V-sole design that the market had ever seen at that time. In 2014, he revitalized the Ben Hogan brand and became their president and CEO. He has multiple golf club patents, nearly 100 iron wedge and putter designs to his credit. He's been known for years as the wedge guy and has written numerous articles and blogs about wedge play. His current creation are Edison wedges, which are simply tremendous, folks. Of the 500 sets made in the first run of the original version, I'm very proud to say, minus stamp number one. And I'm thrilled to have him back with me again today here on Next on the T. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Chris. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Terry, you know how much I loved your original Edison wedges because after you came on the show and talked about them a while back, you know, I made a beeline to make sure that I got the first set that came out, and I absolutely love them. Now you've come out with version 2.0. How have you improved over the original version? Well, you know, Chris, as you can imagine, I've been focused on wedges for 30 years, and I don't see how I'll ever be completely satisfied that I've done it all. But um, <clears throat> I'm continually looking at the wedges that that you know people have in their bags, that people share with me, and you know, we get a handful of of return wedges back to do reworking on, or we sell everything with a hundred percent risk-free trial. So, you know, we get two out of a hundred people maybe 
uh, one a miracle that we couldn't deliver, but um, you know we have we have a high stick rate. But what I continue to notice is where recreational golfers, you know, we're not about tour players. The big brands are all about tour players, and those guys have skills that we just can't even imagine. And you know, I talk to people, and what they want is they want to be able to hit that wedge shot, and if they hit it a little high on the face, a little on the toe, they want to get the same distance out of it. So that's kind of my driving force. And from the Edison Forge to the 2.0, which we introduced last week, what we've done is is reshaped the back a little bit. We've migrated some additional weight up above the center point of the face. And, and we're doing more in the top half of the golf club than anybody. And I find that this continues to improve launch angles, spin rates, forgiveness. Um, and so the 2.0 is an enhancement to what we did with the original Edison Forge. Um, uh, we've seen an improvement across the board. Forgiveness went up, spin went up, trajectory launch angles came down. And then we tweaked a little bit on my my Kaler sole that I've been working on for 30 years since I came up with this idea on a trip to St. Andrews back in 1990. I patented that sole design in the early 90s. And we just nuanced little changes in the bounce angles in this this sole. You know, has two bounce angles in the bottom, and we continue to tweak around with that to see if we can find ways to make this even more versatile because it's the most versatile sole out there for a variety of lies and swing paths. So it's just kind of a new and improved version of what we were making. Terry, talk about the sole of the 2.0 version of your wedges and how they allow us to not have to worry about if we're playing the wrong bounce for our game. You know, Chris, in my 30 years in wedges, bounce has got to be the most confusing aspect of wedges. And um, I take really, I take umbrage to the brands that think we can fit bounce. And and I, as people said, you know, we're going to fit bounce to the turf conditions and we're going to fit bounce to your swing path. And they use these terms of digger, slider, whatever. And my question is this, what is your next wedge lie going to look like? And the answer is nobody knows, unless you're playing at Augusta and then you're pretty sure. And and what kind of divot are you going to take on your next wedge shot? And, you know, we're we're amateur recreational golfers, and sometimes we nip it nice and clean, and sometimes we take a little bigger divot than we would like. Um, the tour guys, they vary their divots on purpose. The rest of us vary our divots accidentally. But the key is you don't know what your next divot is. You don't know what your next trip lie is going to look like. Is it going to be on the hard pan over by the cart path? Is it going to be in the fluffy, soft rough? Did it rain last night? So I came up with this concept 30 years ago, over 30 years ago now. So high bounce is good sometimes and low bounce is good sometimes. So why don't I put a high bounce and a low bounce in every wedge and, and make that wedge be versatile? And so the, the original, Soul design, and it's been called the dual bounce sole, the V sole, different trademarks to the companies I've been with. But now finally I said, you know, I'm just going to call it the Kaler sole because it's my invention. But the the front edge, the front quarter to, to three tenths of an inch of the sole has a very steep bounce that keeps the leading edge out of the ground. And then the trailing part of the sole has a much lower bounce, but to working together, these two bounce angles are always working together to be. Pretty dang good at just about every lie you can possibly imagine. Um, and, and you don't have to worry about having the right bounce because if you have a specialized bounce, you're going to have the perfect bounce for some shots and you're going to have absolutely the wrong bounce for some other shots. And 
you know, your wedges, I mean, like the tour guys, it's going to rain on Augusta apparently this week. These guys are all going to go to the vans and get higher bounce wedges for free when the ground gets soft. Well, the rest of us, we don't get to go in the store and get free wedges when the when it rains or when you have a dry spell or when we're going to a different course. So we need a, a, a sole design that is so versatile, it can handle just about anything that any golf course can throw at us. And that's really what the concept of the Kaler Soul has been about since I invented it. And Terry, as we talk about different turf conditions and that sort of thing, we also have to think about sand. As you point out, if it rains, if it's damp, if it's really dry and fluffy, how do your wedges help us get through the sand regardless of those conditions? You know, it's the same as dry turf. You're going to hit a a given shot, and if you walk into a bunker and it's really pretty tight-packed wet sand, then you're going to you know, hit a shot a certain way. If you walk in that bunker and it's kind of medium texture sand, not too tight, not too fluffy, you know, you're going to adapt to that. And we change how much we lay the club open or how much we don't lay it open. And and I wanted to take, I wanted to take out of your mind thinking about bounce. Just don't think about it. If you have a an Edison wedge in your hand and and you know you don't want to lay the face open, then don't. If you know you need a little more bounce, you lay the face open a little bit. You can also, you know, the I mean, it's going to work just about anywhere. I've always said, though, the toughest shot, toughest wedge shot there is, is off a really soft sand. And no matter whose wedge you're using, really soft sand doesn't provide the, the resistance to the sole of the golf club to where bounce can really work for you. And, you know, I would say to any of your listeners, if you play a bunkers with really soft sand, you just need to practice a lot more. That's the hardest bunker shot there is, which is why you don't ever see really soft, fluffy sand on the PGA Tour because it's really hard, and they like to see these guys nearly hole out every bunker shot. But, um, you know, you can square this up and nip the ball closer in really wet pack sand, and this club is not going to bounce off of that wet pack sand. But then you can, you know, lay it open in the next bunker, maybe a little softer and fluffier sand, and, you lay it open and it's going to work there. Any wedge takes a little getting used to. This this sole design takes less getting used to than any sole out there. And we talk about versatility because you know, I'll use my golf course as an example. My number seven hole is a par three, about 160. And the left bunker is below the green and it's wet pack sand always. And the right bunker is, you know, you're going to have a downhill shot to that flag and it's much softer, fluffier sand. So you asked me, what's the texture of the bunkers like on my golf course? And I'm going to answer, it's everything. I got every texture imaginable, but I only have three wedges in my bag. So, you know, I think that the versatility is the key to any wedge sole. And everybody else talks about very specialized bounces. And I talk about a versatile sole sign that handles anything you throw at it. Terry, a minute ago, you talked about the top part of the face of the wedge. and Talk about the sweet spot that you guys have for the, for your wedges where recreational golfers, we tend to hit it in one area of the face, tour players handle it, you know, hit it in another. Talk about how the profile of the face of your wedge helps us get consistent distance and hit it better. So, and you hit the nail on the head. You know, if you go look at wedges, your listeners look at the wedges you've got in your bag now, the wedges 10 years ago, 15, 20, there's been very little evolution in these golf clubs compared to the other categories. And all the weight in the wedge is low in the club head. And elite players 
uh, tour professionals, elite amateurs have learned you've got to hit the wedge shot down in the second to the fourth groove in order to optimize the performance of that golf club. And when you slide impact up higher in the face, you lose a lot of smash factor, therefore a lot of distance, because there's no meat behind that impact. And one of the things I've been pursuing for years and years is to make the upper half of the blade as beefy as possible so that I'm harnessing gear effect, I'm harnessing smash factor, so that that shot hit on the seventh groove, it flies very close to the one hit perfect down on the third groove. Because that's what's real for us. You know, ball sitting up in the rough a little bit, or we catch it just a hair heavy and catch that ball higher in the face. You know, we don't play the tightly cropped fairways the tour players do. So amateur golfers routinely are making contact up around the fifth or sixth groove, which looks like a center hit. But on a conventional tour design wedge, that's actually lost about 10 to 12% efficiency in smash factor, which is distance and spin. So I started in the mid-90s with my company, Reed Lockhart. I'm saying, what happens if I just thicken up the upper part of the blade? And I've pursued that perpetually through all of the brands of wedges I've designed. Uh, The score wedges of the early 2000s introduced a a progressive weighting, which we carry forward into the Edisons. Um, and, And everybody in the wedge category has started putting a little more mass in the top of their golf club. You can look at it. You can see it when you look at the new wedges versus the older ones. But I'm pleased to say that none of them are where I was in 1995, and none of them are anywhere close to where the Edison's are. We're 40 to 45% more mass above the fifth groove than any wedge on the market. And that translates to better forgiveness of those high face hits, better smash factor, improved spin because of gear effect. Uh, I'm a real gearhead, and a lot of your listeners are. If, but if you're not a gearhead, play the, one of these, play one of these wedges for three to four weeks. And you're going to find yourself getting away with those high face shots that you used to not get away with. And it made it onto the green instead of plugging in the bunker or the creek. And it made it to that back pin instead of ending up 40 or 50 feet short. And, and that's money in the wedge play. Wedge play is all about distance control. So I wanted to build that in. And, you know, nobody talks about forgiveness and wedges, but yet in your listening audience, probably 95% of the golfers out there, they're playing a forgiving iron. They're playing a hybrid because it's more forgiving long iron. They're playing a big mallet putter probably because it's more forgiving than a blade. They're playing a big 460cc driver because they're forgiving. And yet they're trying to play a tour wedge. And, uh, you know, I just go, why is that? Why, why do we force golfers down that path? I, I want to help people hit it closer to the hole more often. Hey, one of the comments from a customer posted on your website, edisonwedges.com, says the new finish is more water repellent than the original. Is that true? And if so, how can that aid in allowing more spin? So, you know, I take, uh, you know, the wedge category, a lot of people, all they talk about is grooves and grinds. And we've covered the grind part in the sole. The grooves on the golf club really have two purposes. and and But the main purpose is to channel away moisture and to channel away grass so you can get more adhesion of the ball to the club face. Very similar, almost identical to the purpose of the tread on the on your car tires. If you play, drove a super dry highway all the time, you would run slick tires and have maximum adhesion to the road. But we need tread on our tires because we encounter wet conditions and we need to channel that moisture so we don't hydroplane. The wedge, the face of the wedge is the same way. The grooves are there to channel away material or moisture 
so that we can get adhesion to the face of the golf club. I would tell you on, on our testing in a robot, we made a 54 degree wedge with a totally smooth face and a 54 degree wedge with our production grooves on it, which are pushed the USGA limit. And we only saw grooves at 15% spin to a dry golf ball. You get 85% of the spin on a totally smooth face on a dry ball. But when you interject moisture or grass, then that, that face with no grooves is totally non-productive. So we put grooves on the face to, to add our coefficient of friction a little bit, but it's mainly to channel away moisture. And I really take offense to people that are make, trying to make a big deal out of their grooves because the USGA has not changed the rules on grooves since 2010. It's 13 years now. We have been regulated by the exact same rules on what we can do on grooves. And there are companies out there saying they're making sharper grooves, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's that's play with words. I mean, you know, we can play with the angle on the grooves and we can technically sharpen that groove. But we're talking, I can maybe add 1% or 2% of spin. Um, and, you know, three or 400 RPMs does not make any difference. That, you know, this spot on the green versus that spot on the green can change the ball performance much more than that. So what we did is use the mass distribution around the club head, and that's where you get more spin from an Edison than anybody else because our gear effect is so pronounced because the mass is high. Back to the finish, we do have these chrome finishes now that are a little slicker than the old chrome finishes. Um, Anything we can do to help, we're going to do. But we're talking minuscule advantages. Um, if your grooves are fresh, um, if the chrome is not compromised, you know, that's nuanced changes in spin. I'll be the first to admit it. But that said, we pushed the USG limit right to the limit and machining techniques and, and tolerances are better than they were 10 years ago. So all of us can make a little better groove now than we could 10 years ago. Terry, you mentioned the term smash factor a moment ago. Talk about what smash factor is for those of us that may not really understand what that means and how that impacts wedge play. So smash factor is a very simple uh, formula that everybody in the club business relies on. And that is, what is the relationship of club head speed to that exiting ball speed? So if I deliver the club head to the ball at 100 miles an hour with a driver, that ball is going to leave that driver at probably 140 to 150 miles an hour, somewhere in the 1.4 to 1.5 smash factor. That's about all we can get out of a driver under the rules of golf. The more loft you add to the golf club, the more that smash factor deteriorates because you've got a glancing blow, which is one of the reasons wedge play is so difficult to master. So I got a 45, 50, 55 degree golf club. That's a very glancing blow to the back of the ball. What we see in wedges on a robot, we can get the smash factor to about 1.8 to 1.9, you know, ball speed to, to club head speed at the perfect impact point of the golf club. Uh, lower in the golf club is where smash factor is typically enhanced. We all know the thin to win. You catch that shot a little thin. It flies further and spins like a maniac. And that's because you've got more of the mass of the club right behind the golf ball. But if anybody looks at their wedges, when you get up into that fifth or sixth groove or even higher, there's no meat behind that that golf ball. You know, that club head's only a quarter of an inch thick up there. 
So smash factor can deteriorate to 0.9, 0.92. You can lose, you know, 12, 15, 18% of your distance by a half an inch miss. So when I talk about smash factor, what I've done with the Edison is I've put actually more mass behind the toe hit, the upper face hit, the heel hit, so that you have an enhanced smash factor. One, I would tell you the best illustration of smash factor is this. Let's think of a standard old hammer, which we perfected 800 years ago on how to drive nails, right? If you take pneumatic nail guns out of the equation. And you can take a hammer and drive a nail very efficiently. But if you take that hammer and turn it on its side and, and hammer the nail where the handle goes into the hammer, it's the same hammer, it's the same weight, but now you've moved the mass away from that impact point and that hammer doesn't drive a nail very good, does it? Right. And that's the easiest explanation of smash factor. And it applies to any of the solid golf clubs. We'll leave drivers and the fast faces and all that out of the equation. But in a solid golf club, if that mass is behind where that ball was contacted, that's like the hammer. And that if you look at the Edison wedge, I'm actually a little thicker on a toe miss than I am on a dead center hit because I'm losing efficiency of the club. I'm making up for it by putting more meat behind that impact point. Same with the high face contact. I'm adding more meat behind oomph behind where the ball was actually contacted on the face. Now that's the simple explanation of smash factor is like that hammer. It that it, it's not how much club head weighs, it's where was the mass in relation to where the ball was contacted. Terry, the other important thing when we have a wedge in our hand obviously is accuracy talk about what makes edison wedges more accurate than pretty much every other set of wedges that we may have sitting in our golf bag right now well you know accuracy is is a combination of of a bunch of things but you know did you square the club face um and i as a golf club maker i don't have any influence on that that's your swing did you make clean contact? Did you hit it heavy? Did you hit it thin? Again, that's your swing. I'm a club maker. I can't fix your swing. Driver makers can't fix your swing. That's what golf professionals are for. Um, but but what happens in in contact is there is a center of, of mass. There is a one pinpoint sweet spot in every golf club. That's going to deliver perfect distance, perfect launch condition. What we've tried to do with the Edison is to – and every golf club, cavity backs, whatever, is to try to mitigate the fall off from that that perfect spot. And we've done that with the Edison wedges better than any other wedge because of the unique way our back is designed. There's more mass behind the toe hit. There's more mass behind the high face hit. There's more mass behind the heel hit. And what accuracy in wedges comes down to is what's the distance differential and the ball flight differential between my best shots and my pretty good ones, and then my not so good ones. And my awful ones are going to be awful regardless of what you're playing. But what I'm trying to say is I want to bring a higher percentage of your shots into the, let's call it the sphere of acceptance out there at 90 yards or 100 yards. You know, if I'm within 15, 20 feet of the hole, I'm as good as a tour player. So I want to get more of your shots, you know, inside what your best is capable of. So that's where the forgiveness in wedges is a little different. And, and the last thing you want in a wedge is a hot spot. And that's why I think golfers are making big mistakes by taking their cavity back iron design and, and buying that gap wedge or buying that even that sand wedge that, that's built like your seven iron because, you know, that thin face is going to have hot spots 
and that thin face is going to have less distance consistency than a solid golf club. That's why the tour players all play, you know, muscle back blade irons because the distance consistency is pinpoint with a muscle back blade. And, and I've seen it on, on robots time and again with a seven iron, you know, thin face golf club, it may throw a 15 or 18 foot circle at 160 yards, but a muscle back blade will throw a six foot circle or a four foot circle. It's about having, you know, on perfect center hits. It's about having mass behind the golf ball. So, you know, it's all about distance control. And whether you hit a gap wedge 88 yards or 120 yards, you want it to go that far, even on your shots that aren't quite perfect. And that's what we've tried to do with the Edison wedges. And and, it, and it's worked very well. That's what we're doing, getting that distance consistent. Let's talk about gapping. What's the proper wedge gap that we should have in our in our golf bags? I, what I see a lot of my buddies have is the the gap the gapping between their nine iron, their pitching wedge, and then getting into their their gap wedge and and on on up through the lob wedge is all over the map. What should it be, Terry? You know, I think it's I think four to five degrees is optimum, and I think the stronger you are, the smaller loft gap you want because what you're trying to keep keep it into is when when regardless of your strength profile, I want more precision at the short end of my set. I don't, you know, if I hit a five iron 25 or 30 feet long or short of the hole, that's a good five iron shot. But a gap wedge shot 25 or 30 feet long or short, that wasn't a very good gap wedge shot. So, you know, as we get closer to the pin, you know, we want more distance precision, which is why this wedge is designed that way, but it's also why you tighten your gapping. I think the whole irons category has gone backwards. You know, everybody's trying to make the longest hitting seven iron so they can win the launch monitor battle in the fitting bay. And what these companies have done is they've moved the seven iron stronger. They left the pitching wedge at 45 and they started putting five degrees between the pitch and the nine and five degrees between the nine and the eight. And then they go down to four and at the three and four iron, five iron, they're they're using two and a half degree gapping. And I think that's exactly backwards. So you have it, you know, from 170 to 200 yards, you have four golf clubs, but from from 120 yards to 80, you only have three. And that's where you're going to score the golf course. So, if, I mean, if you have access to a launch monitor, and I, I wrote a little booklet years ago called The Score Method, we can go out on a flat fairway take your rangefinder and just step it off. I think you want not more than 12 or 14 yards between full swing sandwich, full swing gap wedge, full swing peak club, as I call it, um, you know, so that you have really good precision down there in prime scoring range. So for me, short hitters can get away with a five degree gapping. Medium to longer hitters should not let their gapping get bigger than four degrees. Terry, when we go on your site to build our custom set of wedges, you actually build them with odd number loss. We're used to seeing even number loss. Is there a reason why you do the odd numbers? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that, Chris. And and we'll go back in history. When people first started really paying attention, if you go back to the old days, 70s and before, pitching wedges were 51 or 52 degrees and sand wedges were 55 or 56 and nobody carried a lob wedge. Um, you know, Tom Watson's miracle chip in at, at Pebble Beach was a 55, 56 degree sandwich. And that's what they all used. 
as technology started getting into irons, we started cranking the pitching wedges down and we went to 48 degrees, which became a standard for a long time. So 56 degree sand wedges left a big gap. So the 52 degree gap wedge came about. It was pretty standard, 52 degree gap wedge. But then the irons guys kept migrating their lofts downward. And so we saw people opting for a 50, 54, 58 gapping um, because they got a stronger pitching wedge now 46 or 47 degrees. We've seen the P club now stop at about 45, but in Tom Watson's bag in the seventies, that, that 40, that uh, 45 degree golf club had an eight on the bottom of it. It wasn't, and, and he didn't pitch the ball with an eight iron. He pitched with his pitching wedge, which was a 50 degree golf club. So uh, you, I think I always call them the P clubs because they could be the number 10 iron is what they basically are. But um you know, what, what What we saw is the iron market kind of stopped at about 45 degrees. Most of the, the peak clubs are now 45 degrees. And with that being an odd number, I said, you know, we should make our wedges in odd numbers because they blend the modern irons better. I can build you a 49, 53, 57 set. You know, I can build you a 47, you know, 51, 55, 59 set. We tweak our lofts one degree weak if, if somebody wants even numbers, they think they want a 54. But the other reason for that is our 53 degree, for example, performs more like in distance and trajectory like a 50 or 52 from other people. Because this weight distribution lowers trajectory, it also tends to add a few yards. People tend to find our wedges are two or three yards longer than what they're used to. So that's the other reason behind odd numbers. And the other reason is those companies need to draw attention to themselves, and it's a fun topic to talk about. But there is a rationale behind it. And, Terry, most of us go into a big box store, and we're going to buy our wedges right off the rack. Talk about getting fit for your wedges, because for me, at least, every time I buy something off the rack, I end up hitting the ball all all, all over the place, left, right, whatever. Getting your wedges fit for you, to me, seems like the next extension of making sure you're as dialed in as you could possibly be. You know, I'm a huge believer in custom fitting, and I've gone in anonymously and to iron fittings at a number of custom fitters, and it's amazing how little attention is given to wedges. And and you know, I tell golfers this, if you have a set of irons you know how to play, then you want to you want to blend your wedges to those. You want to get a shaft weight that's similar. You know, if you're playing a lightweight steel or graphite irons, the last thing you want is is that off-the-rack wedge with a stiff steel shaft in it. You're going to have a 25, 35, 40-gram disconnect right there in prime scoring range. I'm a big believer in graphite and wedges, particularly the KBS products that we rely on, the, the PGI and TGI graphite. I mean, the quality of graphite is so good today. And graphite just inherently has a better feel Um you know, of, of what the club head is doing. When you're around the greens, you're relying on your your feedback to your hands of how far did you take that club head back and how fast you're swinging it to get your distance you want on those touch shots. Graphite just does that better than tubular steel. Just end of story. Um, but I think you definitely want to get your line angles right, get your length right, get that shaft right. And we don't charge extra for length extensions, for line adjustments, for loft tweaks, for building up your grip to get a good fit. And the key is you want those clubs to feel good in your hands and you want them, you want that what I call a seamless transition from your eight, nine and, and peak club 
on into your wedges. You want the weight and the balance and the performance to be similar. That said, your wedges, you're doing a lot of things with your wedges that you don't do with your other irons. And if you take a tip from the tour players, most of these guys are playing something equivalent to an X100 shaft and their irons are strong guys. They hit it a long way, but they'll opt down for like an S400 in their wedges. So they play a little softer shaft in their wedges. Gives you a little better feedback around the greens. So we we recommend the same thing. We offer three weights of steel, three progressive flexes, uh, four weights of graphite, four progressive flexes, so that we can really get that feel in your hands optimized. So when we go to order our wedges on your website, how do we know which one of those, which one of the shafts is the right one for us? I think there are two ways to know it. If you've been custom fitted for your irons, let's work from there. We love talking to customers. We have some good people on the phone. Um, you know, call us and we'll chat with you and find out what's in your irons and help you. We also have a really cool tool called Wedge Fit, and it's called the Wedge Fit Scoring Range Analysis. And if you'll go spend three or four minutes with that, it really guides us into recommending a starting point to get your wedges specced out properly. You know, what shaft you need, what your lingles, lengths, you know, grip should be. Um, but again, we encourage anybody to call us. Take Wedge Fit. You're going to get an email back from us. We're also going to when you take wedge fit, we're going to send you a series of emails I pinned, and I call it Wedgeology 101 because I find people are so confused, like we talked about, about bounce and grooves and shafts and custom fitting, smash factor, gear effect. And, and what I know is the more you know about wedge performance, the more you're going to realize what we're doing is the right thing. So we, we take an educational process there, and we do a lot of podcasts like this. I'm a big believer in entertaining um, and educating. Maybe it's edutainment, <laughs> but, um, you know, I always want to try to help people understand how wedges work, why they work, why problems, you know, what problems the wedge can fix and what problem you need instruction and practice. My, when I was growing up, Chris, my dad had a great saying. He said, son, there's nothing wrong with your game. Another 5,000 practice balls won't fix, <laughs> <laughs> which I took him to heart. I was a total ranger at, and still am. I love going to the range, just hitting golf balls. Terry. You've interviewed more golfers than probably anyone on the planet to get feedback on golf club performance. Has the feedback you've received over the years, has it changed from year to year, decade to decade, or has it stayed pretty constant, let's say, over the last 20 or 30 years? You know, Chris, I would say for the most part, it's it's stayed pretty constant. And what I hear from golfers, regardless of handicap, is I hit my wedges too high. I don't get the spin I want, except for the very low single digits guys. Um, my distance consistency is lousy. And a lot of that's built into the golf club, which is why the Edisons look so different. You know, I I was talking to a guy the other day. I said, nobody ever liked the look of new technology in our game. You know, we all played persimmon woods. The metal wood comes out. Nobody looked at it and said, man, that's beautiful. Not when you've got a persimmon wood in your bag. Nobody thought the first cavity back irons looked as good as the classic blades. Nobody thought the ping answer looked as nice as as the 8802 or a bullseye and those craftsmen. Uh, you know, hybrids, weird-looking thing, but they work like crazy. Big Bertha, great Big Bertha. People laughed at those golf clubs till they hit it. Technology cannot move on our golf clubs without the club looking different. And, you know, thank goodness for all of that technology. We got bags full of big drivers and hybrids and, and game-improvement irons and spaceship putters and and the Edison wedge looks very conventional at address, 
but the back of this golf club looks like nothing you've ever seen, and that's intentional. So, um, you know, I think that that what I hear from golfers are those same three things. My misses come up short. My ball flight's too high. My distance is inconsistent. And most of that's built into your golf club. But I wrote a blog a while back, one of my most popular, that's why wedge mastery is so elusive. And, you know, what makes wedges hard to hit is because it's a glancing blow. I mentioned that a while ago. You know, you've got 48, 50, 55 degrees aloft. You're, you're hitting that ball with a glancing blow. And I think for anybody, you want to improve your wedge game, just throttle back what you think is a full wedge swing. You know, it's an 80% swing. It's a 75% swing. It lets you stay ahead of the club head. Um, get the shaft right. That will also help you stay ahead of it. But, you know, wedges are not meant to be hit hard. And the harder you hit a wedge, the higher it goes and the shorter it goes, it seems. So, um, you know, but – and if you rely, if you think about it, you take the putter out, you know, you hit your two or three wedges, you know, more than all the other clubs in your back combined, typically, even if you're a tour player. And it would pay everybody just find a way to get better with your wedges, you know, play better wedges, get fitted for your wedges, play out of sentence, but, and spend time with them. You've got to spend time with your wedges to understand them and make them your best friends, make them your best friends. Your scores are going to come down dramatically, whether you're trying to break bar or break a hundred. There was a lady at our club, kind of a beginner. She's in there, you know, her, her big number, next number is a hundred. And she moves the ball, you know, up and down the fairway pretty well. I went and told, showed her how to hit a basic pitch shot. And she grabbed me. And as I was coming through the club the other day, she said, my first round under 100 was 89. She wow. took 11 strokes off of her scores because now she, when she's inside 50 or 60 yards, she's going to get down in three shots most of the time. You know, and she's not going to have those total blowups where she chunks a couple of wedges and skulls one. And next thing you know, she took six shots from 60 yards. And she said, I didn't do that all day today except one hole, you know. So, um, I mean, there's nothing as gratifying to me as, you know, being inside 60 or 70 yards and just stabbing it to six, eight, 10 feet where you got a good chance of making that putt. And, Boy, everybody's scores will come down if you get good inside 50 or 60 yards. So let's take that a step further, Terry. When when you're playing with a weekend hacker like me, what are some of the mistakes that you see us making consistently in our wedge game? I would say the things I see most is you got a really bad technique. You don't understand how to hit a basic pitch shot. You grip the club too tight. You, you know, people have forward press the hands. They won't get their weight over on their left side. They're 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 muddled by fear and frozen by bad bad technique. And these are shots to be very relaxed, soft hands, light grip on the club, so you have great feel. Um, I mean, there's so much good converse, you know, good instruction out there. And I, I wrote this a while back. There is no there, there's no reason why everybody can't have a good grip on the golf club, and there's no reason why everybody can't learn a good posture. If you have a good grip on the club and a good posture, uh, you know, the, the basic swing movement comes a lot easier. But I see golfers all the time on the range, and they're out there trying to practice a horrible technique. And this game is too damn hard if you're doing it right. It's really too hard if you're trying to do it wrong. Um, and if you go look at the LPGA Tour, look at the PGA Tour, 
you don't see a lot of variety in grips and you see even less variety in posture and setup. There is a proper way to stand if you're getting ready to strike a golf ball. There's a one proper way to hold the golf club, whether you're a overlap fan, a 10-figure fan, an interlock fan, your hands are still on the golf club essentially the same way. And, uh, you know, I was just talking to our grip supplier and was talking about, you know, the growing trend that we see and they see the mid-sized grips. And yet I talked to a friend of mine that's been selling golf gloves for 30 years. He said the the the, the, the scare, the disparity from small to medium, large, cadet, whatever, your size dispersion has not changed anything in the last 30 years. And yet, you know, everybody's migrating to bigger grips. And I, this is, I think, the, the beginning of bad golf because you're going to get the club up in the palm of your hand. And if you're holding the club properly in your fingers, that small grip feels perfect. That standard size grip feels perfect. But it feels small if you're letting the club get up in your palms. And that's just the first step toward mediocre or poor golf is to a bad hold on the golf club. Terry, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing there at Edison Wedges and uh, follow you, whether it's on your website or it's on social media? So um, our social media is Edison Wedges. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. We have a newsletter. If you go to our website, you take WedgeFit, you're going to be in the know for everything we're doing. Uh, you can also just sign up to get a newsletter, which we're going to try to guide you to go to WedgeFit. It's a great tool, whether you buy our wedges or somebody else's. You know, WedgeFit is a great starting point on kind of what your wedge set makeup ought to look like. I write a blog every week on golfwrx.com as the wedge guy. Um, always listening to people. I have an open email from that blog. People can write me a question. I love it when people send in questions. It gives me, you know, I've been writing a a weekly blog for 20 years, over a thousand articles. And so I'm always looking for what do people really want me to write about? I've got 40 years as a gearhead and 40 years in this industry and a lifetime in golf. I literally do not remember life before golf. And um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for, for what people want to know. And I'll, I have all this knowledge to share. I have no reason to keep any of it a secret. So, um, you know, and, I don't know anything about wedges that the big companies don't know. Um, I just don't have tour players to cater to, and they do. Terry, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. I hope we get to continue to have the privilege of having you share that knowledge with uh, with me and my listeners. You're fantastic, my friend. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Chris. And we're going to have some new things coming in the middle of the year on top of what we're already doing. and. Um, you know, but but I encourage your people go go read what we're doing uh, at edisonwedges.com. And I think you'll find it makes a lot of sense. And if you put the club under trial, which we have a risk free trial program, you'll, you're going to see you're getting away with shots with this wedge. You're seeing ball performance that you have not seen with your historic wedges. And, you know, it's all about performance. Every golf club is. And, you know, we if they don't help your game, we want them back. We don't want them in your bag if you're not happy and we don't get very many back. Well, Terry, I look forward to hearing more about what you guys are doing later this year. Come back and share that with us in between now and then. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. We'll do it. Thank you, Chris. See you, Terry. See you. That is the wedge guy, Terry Kaler. And folks, anything you need to know about the wedge game, the equipment, how to hit shots, bounce, smash factor, all of those sorts of things, Terry is the authority on that sort of thing. 
You got to go out there and check out these Edison wedges. I have the 1.0 version. Looking forward to checking out the 2.0 version. Terry's a fantastic guest. Been a great friend for many, many years. There's nobody better than Terry Kaler to trust your wedge game to. Go out online and check out Edison Wedges. You're going to be happy you did, and it's really going to improve your short game. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Linda Harto, Rick Fair, and Terry Kaler for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are 2019 Charles Schwab Cup champion, and Champions Tour Player of the Year that year, Scott McCarron. A two-time winner on the PGA Tour, Paul Stankowski will be back with me, as will top instructor Kevin Roman, and one of the all-time great Major League players, Fred Lynn, will be back as part of the show. Very excited to have those four guys back and part of Next on the Team next week. Folks, you can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on Spotify. Apple Podcast, Audio Boom, Player.fm, and Good Pods. And my sincere thanks to those folks for making Next on the T one of their recommended podcasts. Download their free app and stream your favorite podcast on your favorite device using Good Pods. And most of all, as always, I am so thankful for all of you making Next on the T a part of your golfing content. You are the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week. Hit him straight, my friends.